The Bible says that he is full of mercy. God is full of mercy. And he is so quick to pour out mercy on all who call to him for mercy. Uh, Where sin abounds, the Bible says grace abounds even more. So if you have genuinely called out to Christ for mercy, you have received rich mercy. That is really good news. Uh, If you have your Bible, uh, please turn to the book of Acts chapter 19. If you're just joining us for the first time, uh, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. This book tells the story of what happened after Christ died and rose again to pay for the sin of the world. It tells the story here, a book of facts about how the gospel news about Christ then went out. Uh, and, And the early disciples began to tell people about Christ We are now in Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading in just a minute, uh, starting in verse 21, and we'll read through uh, the rest of chapter 19. Acts 19, starting in verse 21. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, we just turn to you now, and we would ask for mercy in and through Christ. Father, apart from Christ, the the Bible says we are spiritually blind, dead, uh, deaf, we, we do not see clearly, we do not hear clearly, we do not know things clearly, though we might think we do, that we need your mercy to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might truly see, that we might know truth, that we might know you. And so, Father, we just ask for your grace. I pray for your help here, Lord, feeling even more weak probably this morning. I would just offer this sermon up to you as, as five loaves and two fish. And Lord, if it's left in my hands, it will do nothing. But if you will take it and break it, uh, I know that you can bless many uh, through this section of your word. So we thank you for hearing our prayers, Father. You are full of tender mercy. And we're so grateful for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. At this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is on his third and final missionary trip here in this book of Acts. He's traveling around to new areas, telling people about Jesus Christ. Paul is now in Ephesus here in this chapter. And listen, at this point in the book of Acts, absolute miracle, this man Paul is still alive. Uh, It's just a miracle this guy's living. Paul, on these different missionary trips, he has endured tremendous hostility. Tremendous violence. And you know, Paul's experience in Acts, it's just a constant reminder to us of this simple truth. The gospel message of Jesus spreads on this earth through pain. This entire book of Acts shows us the gospel spreading to new areas, to new people groups through pain. That's just how the gospel spreads. Not all the time, but Typically, yes. That's just the life of the church now as we go out to spread the name of Christ. We look forward as Christians to heaven, where we will then be the church triumphant, no more pain. But until then, as we seek on this earth to spread the name, the fame of Christ, we continue now as the church militant afflicted, as 2 Corinthians 7 says, on every side. John Calvin said this. He said, The church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death a passage 
to life. And we see in this text again here today, the church militant. As the, the, the message of Christ spreads, the church once again under attack. Let's go ahead and read it, starting in verse 21. Luke, who wrote this, he says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And once again, it is just a church militant under attack as they seek to spread the gospel of Christ. There are three major parts to this text that we'll look at this morning. Here they are on the screen. First, we see the conflict here, then the cause, and finally the covering. The conflict, the cause, the covering. And the first thing we see here is just this, this conflict in Ephesus. Paul has been in the city of Ephesus now for over two years. And it's important to remember what he's been doing here. Because you'll notice verse 21, Luke says, after these things. 
there was a conflict. So what has he been doing? Well, Acts 19.8, up above, said that for the first three months here in Ephesus, Paul went to the Jewish synagogue, sharing Christ with the Jews there. But when the Jews rejected him, as the Jews were prone to do in the book of Acts, Paul then went to uh, the Hall of Tyrannus, a public building or, or school there in Ephesus, and he began sharing Christ with the people there in that building. Daily, verse 9 said, for two years. Most likely during the hottest hours of the day, sharing Christ in this public building. And finally, Paul has now begun to see some fruit from his long hours, days of labor. Verse 17 above says that the name of Jesus had now begun to be extolled or praised in this major city of Ephesus. As many people there now were beginning to turn to Christ in faith. And listen, these new baby Christians there in Ephesus, they were starting to change. Verse 19 says that those who had previously practiced magic in Ephesus brought their magic books and burned them. This public book burning, voluntary, worth millions of dollars maybe these books, their lives just visibly changing these new Christians. And listen, that is what Jesus does when you first receive him in, in faith. He doesn't just forgive you, but the Lord Jesus then begins to change you. The Holy Spirit living in you now beginning to sanctify you from the inside out. And over time, you visibly begin to change. You begin to look and think and act more like Christ. And, and man, listen, when, when, when many people in a city begin to turn to Christ and start to change, like here in Ephesus, that entire city starts to change. An entire city shaped, impacted by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has now happened in this major city of Ephesus. We are seeing in this city a very substantial culture shift. Derek Thomas says this. He says, we see here in Ephesus the cumulative effect of a, of a community of believers whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. The gospel has changed not only themselves, but the life of the city itself Commerce, education, art, and relaxation, everything had changed. Christianity changes more than just the hearts of men and women. It changes the culture in which they live. By giving them different interests and concerns, Christianity had now given Ephesus a very different hue. Do you want to see a city changed dramatically? Well, you can work in politics. That's a fine thing to do. Fantastic. My dad was a state representative for eight years. Work in politics and preach the gospel. Because the gospel is what changes people from the inside out, not politics. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that will radically impact cities. Radically. As the Lord Jesus Christ begins to change one person after the next from the inside out. 
And that's happened now in Ephesus. And verse 21 says that now that this stuff has happened, now after these things, Paul resolved in the Spirit, the Spirit now compelling Paul to leave Ephesus and move on down the road. And here's a map of where Paul says he's going to go here. He says in verse 21 that he will pass through Macedonia up there to the northwest. He'll go through Achaia down to Athens and Corinth here. And then Paul says he's actually going to retrace his steps and go all the way back over here, lower right, to Jerusalem. But he won't stop there. If you look at the end of verse 21, he says, after I've been there, to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. First time Paul has mentioned Rome here in the book of Acts. And Paul there in those couple of verses, he's now given us an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. That's where Paul will go, ultimately landing in the last chapter of the book of Acts in the great city of Rome. But before Paul can leave Ephesus here, a conflict now ignites. If you look again at your Bibles at the end, at verse 23, Luke says, About that time, just as he was getting ready to leave, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It was a sudden upheaval, a revolt, a riot. No small riot, Luke says, not done in a corner in Ephesus. This was citywide concerning the way, which is another name for Christianity. And Paul now, he will barely escape for his life. And I just want you to pause there for a second because when you, when you consider what's happened now here in Acts 19... We can learn some things there about the spreading of the gospel here on this earth, the sharing of Christ with a lost world. We learn some things here really about evangelism. And for starters, we see that evangelism doesn't just happen in church buildings. Paul started in a synagogue, but he didn't end up there. No, Paul ended up going out to meeting people on their turf, public space interacting with non-Christians there. It's very easy to think that evangelism is simply inviting non-Christians to a church service. That's great. Let's keep doing that. And we'll just try to have our services understandable when, when non-Christians are, are with us. Uh, but, but evangelism is going out. Note that with Paul here. And we also see here that evangelism or sharing, the sharing of Christ in this lost world, it takes labor. You know, I, I, I seriously so often want it to be easy. A very simple, very quick, you share Christ once, the fruit falls off the tree, and occasionally that does happen. But more often than that, it is longer, it is harder. Paul took two years here. Daily, same location, hottest hours of the day, the blood, sweat, and tears labor. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus compared evangelism to harvesting a field, which is not easy. You don't sit back and just hope that it all gets harvested. No, you get out there, you roll up your sleeves, and you work. Long days of hot, hard work. Many starts and stops for your life group, maybe. Redirecting. Starting over, which my groups have done multiple times. Rejections. Failures. Not easy. It is labor. 
And one final thing we see here, I think with Paul that we can connect, we can see with evangelism, the sharing of Christ, it can be painful. You know, Paul, you, you step back here, he, he sees great fruit now in, in Ephesus, this entire city impacted by the gospel, but it comes at a cost. This conflict now here in Ephesus, and, and please hear this, this was not Paul's first conflict in the book, or in the city of Ephesus. You know, it's easy to read through the, the book of Acts, and because Luke has kind of uh, truncated everything, shrunk it, condensed it a little bit, it's easy to miss some of the pain that these early Christians endured to spread the gospel. It would be very easy to look here in, in chapter 19 and think these past two years were a bit of a cakewalk for Paul until this last little conflict, until you read the other New Testament books and you began to piece some things together, and then the pain here in Ephesus for Paul becomes much more evident. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he fought at Ephesus with wild beasts. Now, I don't think Paul was wrestling animals in Ephesus. He's probably saying that he fought for his life in Ephesus on many occasions. 1 Corinthians also implied, implies that over the past two years, he's maybe been imprisoned in Ephesus. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, also probably referring to his time in Ephesus, he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's probably in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Most likely Ephesus. You put it all together, tremendous fruit For the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, and it came at a cost. Two years. Two years of very hard labor daily with great affliction. Paul just said, so utterly burdened that he despaired of life itself, felt that he'd received the very sentence of death, thought he would be killed. Now, we don't think of the Apostle Paul as one who despaired. He just said he did. Despaired of life itself. Thought for sure he would be killed, most likely there in Ephesus. And listen, it is just a great reminder to us that the gospel spreads on this earth through pain. No other way that the gospel spreads. Occasionally it spreads painlessly, but it is typically very painful as it spreads. Derek Thomas says this, he says, the progress of the gospel runs along a path strewn with obstacles and difficulties. It is not easy. If your life group is running into obstacles and difficulties right now, thinking of how to go out, this is the reason. It is not easy. It is not easy. So that's one thing we see here, point one, the the conflict here in Ephesus. And the second thing that Luke gives us here then, point two, is the cause or the reason for this final conflict here in Ephesus. And what was the reason or the cause for this final conflict here? 
Here it is, very simply, in just a couple of words. Here's the reason for this conflict. The gospel confronts our idols. Christ confronts our false gods. And and many people on this earth, when they hear the gospel and their idols are exposed and confronted, they will defend their idols. And at all costs, the reason for this conflict here. Luke just told us there, verse 23, about this disturbance in Ephesus. In the very next verse, he tells us why, the cause. If you look at verse 24, great disturbance arose for or because a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know, That from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So you catch the picture. There's this silversmith, uh, literally a, a one who hammered metal there in Ephesus, probably the leader of the craftsmen in this city. One commentator called him the master of the trade guild uh, in, here in Ephesus. Uh, and he, this guy made shrines of Artemis or Diana, the goddess of fertility. Uh, here's an image of Artemis. Archaeologists have found plenty of images like that in, in uh, Ephesus. And Artemis worship in Ephesus was a huge deal. It was big in the whole region, but Ephesus was really ground zero for Artemis worship. The temple to Artemis there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world at at this time. It would have looked something like this back in its prime. Larger than a football field, supported by over 160-foot-high columns. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus. And Paul has been running around saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And you know, this guy Demetrius made silver shrines to Artemis. Maybe, maybe little images of Artemis herself. Or, or it could have been small replicas of that temple. They were, they were idols that people worshipped. They, they saw some kind of power there. They, they, they felt, they, they worshipped these things. But I want you to look again at what Demetrius just said to these other craftsmen. Verse 26, we just read it. Just look at the bottom of that. This Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And you know, it, it, it's a very simple principle with the Apostle Paul. How could idols created by humans actually be God over the humans that made the idols? It's a pretty simple principle, and Paul goes around saying that everywhere. And he then points people to the one true God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was created not by human hands, but who actually created all human hands, created all human beings and everything else for that matter. You just stop now and back up and think about this. What's happened here in Ephesus, it's just simply that the gospel, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, had now confronted here in this city this idol. 
Artemis, called by Paul now, a false god. But listen to this, this conflict here in Ephesus. It wasn't just about Artemis, was it? Did you catch it as we read through it? This conflict was also about money. This, this Artemis worship for these craftsmen, that was big money. Making these idols, these little replicas of the temples, and people paying big money for those things, taking them home and worshiping them. And listen, if people now stop worshiping Artemis in Ephesus, these guys know this money is gone. And we read it several times in this text. If you look at the end of verse 24, Luke says, These shrines brought no little business to the craftsmen. Or the middle of verse 25, Demetrius says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And the Greek there could be translated as, Men, you know that from this business we have an easy means of earning a living. We have easy money from this thing. Growing rich from Artemis. Or verse 27 Demetrius again, he says, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And can you see it? Artemis was not the only idol that these craftsmen worshipped. They also worshipped money, and Artemis was just the way to get it. And the gospel has now confronted both of those idols there in Ephesus. And listen, that, that's just what happens over time when the gospel is proclaimed. When, when Christ is shared on this earth, at some point, the gospel confronts our idols. Christ confronts our false gods. And here's the thing. We've all got little idols. Little false gods that we tend to worship. And you might say, I don't have any little false gods. I don't have little image Artemis on my mantle. But you do have little heart idols, all, all kinds of things that our fallen hearts are prone to worship instead of the one true God. Scott Oliphant says this, he says, An idol is anything that takes the place of God in someone's heart. Or John Stott says an idol is a God's substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place in the heart which God should occupy is an idol. And, and just put very simply, it's, it's, it's whatever you look to in this life for ultimate happiness. Fulfillment. It, it could be money for you. Like these craftsmen. It could be sex for, for you. It could be food or fame could be sports or, or pleasure or could be your family. Could be your, your job. If, if I just have this, I will really be happy. Maybe for you, it, it, it's not something like sports or something out, out there. Maybe for you, it's power and control. If I just have power, 
over people. My spouse, my kids, if I can just control everything in my life, I can control the atmosphere in the room, I'll be happy. Or maybe for you, it's more esteem and, and, and affection. If people just like me, if, if, if I'm noticed, if people are pleased with me, I'll be happy. Or maybe for you, it's more something like security and survival. If I just have a job, enough food on the table, a safe home, I have my security cameras, a family locked away safe, I'll, I'll be happy. And all, all these things that, that, that our hearts are prone to idolize, to, to, to worship as the path to ultimate happiness in this world. And listen, we, we, we worship things like that because God created us to be worshiping beings. He created you to worship Him. But in the Garden of Eden, when mankind rebelled against God, our worship then became very misguided. And we stopped worshiping the one true God, and we began to worship all of these other things in our quest for happiness, in our quest for ultimate fulfillment. Romans 1.25 says this about the human race. We exchanged, as a human race, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we worshiped and served the creature, all these created things, rather than the creator. John Calvin said that in the fall, the human race became a perpetual factory of idols. We just started coming up with all of these things that we now worship and pursue, looking for for ultimate happiness instead of going and looking to and worshiping the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when it comes right down to it, it's not just the Ephesians who are idolaters. It's really all of us who are idolaters. They cried out, great is Artemis. Maybe you cry out, great is money. Great is my job. Great is my security. Great is my power. Great is my esteem. Idolaters, here's the great news. Christ came and died for idolaters. Thank God for that. He didn't come for good people. He came for sinners like me, an idolater. And Jesus Christ on the cross, he took our sins of idolatry upon himself. He paid for the sin of idolatry in order that idolaters like me and you might be forgiven through a simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that is really good news. But, but please listen to me. The gospel will confront your idols. Christ will confront your idols. Christ will ask you to give them up. All these things you tend to idolize and pursue and attempt to find true happiness, Jesus says, make a choice. Make a choice. You can either have Christ and His forgiveness, eternal life with Christ, or you can continue to cling the rest of your life to all your idols. It really does come down to Christ or Artemis. 
Derek Thomas says this. He says, we love our idols more than we are willing to admit. And the Christian gospel is prepared to take no prisoners. It is all or nothing. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said, or you cannot worship both Christ and all of your idols. You must choose. But, but listen, once you truly see Christ in His glory, as we talked about last week, once you truly find that Christ is the treasure hidden in the field, you get spiritualized to see it. You realize that is happiness. And you go all in. You make the choice to lay down your idols. It does not always happen overnight with all of your <laughs> idols. Not perfectly when you first come to Christ. Your heart as a baby Christian is still sinful. Mine is still sinful. All of ours are. We're still prone to worship idols. But if you've come to Christ in faith, you are forgiven for your idolatry. And Jesus, over time, changes you. You might, when you first come to Christ in faith, you might just see a couple big idols in your life. <laughs> you can suddenly see, man, I've been looking for ultimate happiness in sports. And you know what? The Vikings are not going to give it to me. It's just not happening. The Packers always get the ultimate happiness. We don't get it. And you see it and you lay it down. It's cheap happiness. Or you see you've been looking for your ultimate happiness in sex. And you realize that if that's all you're pursuing, you just need more and more and more. Because it will never provide ultimate happiness. Or you see that you're looking for ultimate happiness in money. And you can't get enough. John Rockefeller was the, most, was the wealthiest man in the world when he was alive. Someone asked him, John, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. It's never enough. And you see them when you first come to Christ, maybe some big idols, and you're like, oh, Christ is better than that stuff, man. You begin to lay it down, and Jesus then, over time, starts to show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. He starts to show you more things over time that you idolize, maybe power and control for you, maybe esteem and affection for you, maybe security and survival for you. Yeah, I want Jesus and this, and I'll be fine. And Jesus says, you don't need that to be happy. You have me. Let it go. Let it go. And the more you trust and the more you let go, the more happiness you find in Christ. The more, the more peace, the more joy you, you find in Christ. You lose your life, as Jesus said, you let go of your idols and you save your life. You, you, you get more of Christ, more of his benefits. I know how this goes personally, let me tell you. Over the past year or so, you know what, and I've just said it, you know which one the Lord is highlighting in my heart? This attachment that I kind of cling to that I think will make me happy? Power and control. I don't like to feel like I'm in situations where I don't have power, <laughs> where, where I'm totally powerless. It feels very uncomfortable. I don't like it when life feels out of control to me. And I will do anything to try to get it back in control, even if I have to clean the whole house. And it takes me 24 hours to do it. My heart goes towards that attachment of power and control. And Jesus, over the last year, has been saying more to me, let it go, Brett. Let it go. That's not your path to happiness. Let it go. 
There's a prayer I pray all the time when my heart gets triggered by things. You know what that feels like. Something happens around you and your emotions are suddenly rolling. Something has been triggered down in here and I go through a prayer now. I let go, Lord, of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for esteem and affection. I let go of my desire for security and survival. I let go of my desire to change this situation. Thy will be done, not mine. And I find that on most occasions when I'm triggered inside, I'm triggered by one of those things <laughs> that I'm trying to grasp after a little bit of an idol here on this earth to make me happy in addition to Christ. And Jesus just progressively changes us, asks us to lay them down. Just know, though, for the sake of this text, that when the gospel first enters a person's life or a city like Ephesus, they hear about Christ. The gospel will confront your idols. Christ will expose. He will confront your false gods. And you must make a choice. Let go of your idols and receive Christ or reject Christ and defend your idols. And here's the thing. Many, many people on this planet, when they hear the gospel, they will defend their idols at all costs because they do not believe yet that happiness is found in Christ. They cannot see it They will defend their idols. That's all they have. And listen, that right there is one of the primary reasons why the gospel spreads on this earth through pain. Because the gospel will confront people's idols and many will then defend their idols and attack those who share the gospel. Which is what happens here. So that's the second thing we see here. First, the conflict then the cause, the confronting of these idols. And the final thing here though, the covering. God's protection of his people. You know, this city, now that this idol, Artemis and money, has been (laughs) confronted, this city just explodes with chaos. That's what you read in the middle part of this thing. You don't have time to look at it in detail. Here's the gist of what goes on. Verse 28 says, these craftsmen were now enraged. Full of fury, crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Making themselves hoarse, trying to shout Paul and the other Christians down. And verse 29 says the entire city was now filled with confusion. That's what happens when people start getting into defending idols. It's just mass confusion, mass noise, fighting, yelling to defend idols. And they, they all rushed into the theater now, verse 29 says. Here's a photo of the theater in Ephesus. It wasn't a little movie theater. That's where they went. That's where they are right now. That held 25,000 people to show you the possible size of this riot. And this enraged crowd, Luke tells us here, drags a couple of Paul's friends there. Gaius and Aristarchus probably looking for blood because they couldn't find Paul. And when Paul then tries to enter to defend himself in the gospel, I'm sure, his other friends there... They restrain him. They will not let him go in, indicating, I think, how violent this crowd must have been. The Jews there in the crowd, they then pushed one of their own Jews forward, this guy Alexander, probably to tell this crowd that it wasn't the Jews causing the problems, it was those Christians over there. But the crowd hears that he's a Jew and they just shout him down. Verse 34 says, for two straight hours, yelling, Great is Artemis. 
that is a place that has had its idols provoked by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Vehemently defending now their idol. Even though most of the people, verse 32 says, don't even know why they're there. It's hilarious. Everybody's shouting, great is Artemis, and you got the majority of the crowd that's like, I don't know why I'm here, but I am angry about something, and Artemis must be great. So I'm just going to yell along with everybody else. It's a crazy situation. It's a very hostile situation for Paul and for these other Christians. And yet, man, once again, like we've seen countless times in Acts, God protects a providential covering for his people God sovereignly working here now in this text to protect his people God working through a city official something God does multiple times in Acts if you remember back to Acts 18 Paul was back in Corinth and they were trying to kill him there too the Jews were angry at him uh, wanting to kill him but Gallio Roman official Right before Paul could say anything, Gallio steps in and he shuts the Jews up. And Paul is rescued by God through this non-Christian official, Gallio. Same thing God does here now. Verse 35 says, that Paul can't get in here. Verse 35 says, the town clerk, the city administrator, now steps up. City administrator, the clerk, he would have been the chief liaison between the city of Ephesus and the Roman Empire. So this was a big wig in the city of Ephesus. And verse 35 says, he now quieted this crowd. We all know here in Ephesus that Artemis is God. Don't need to go crazy here, people. And he says in verse 37, these Christians are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our God. I think what he's saying there simply is they haven't done anything yet that would be considered to be a crime by the Roman Empire. They're free to follow their own God, these these Christians. There's a freedom of speech in the Roman Empire as long as they don't actually speak against the emperor or, or, or desecrate the temple of Artemis or something like that. So there's no crimes. And the clerk says, hey, if Demetrius and these other men, you got something against Paul and his men, bring it to the courts. And we'll solve it there. But he says, we are in danger of being charged by Rome with the crime of rioting. Not the Christian. We are. Go home. And the people go home. Most of them not know why they're there or why they're going home, but they're going home now. And man, God has now once again here in Acts, he's protected this, this providential sovereign covering over his people. God working through this non-Christian official. And listen, God has promised to protect all of his people who seek to share Christ, provoking idols when they do in this lost and dying world. God has promised to protect us all through the scriptures. God will protect a, a rock, a, a refuge The Bible says, at all times, covering his people. That does not mean that we will not get hurt when we go to spread the gospel. We will at times. Paul does not get hurt here, but he does in lots of other places. And you know, just a couple years after this, he will be martyred, spreading the gospel. We will get hurt at times, 
sharing Christ in this world as idols are provoked in people's hearts, but even in the hurt we might experience, God is there protecting, covering us, setting the boundaries for our pain. Look at the book of Job. The devil couldn't inflict more pain on Job that God would allow. God set the boundaries for the pain. God promises to reward us for our pain in sharing Christ. And listen, the second a Christian dies on this planet, after sharing Christ in his or her life, spreading the name and the fame of Christ, well, it's just instant glory for that Christian in heaven. We'll make all the pain of this life then look like momentary, light, light, momentary afflictions. Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Let Goods and Kindred Go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you know why God might allow the suffering of his people on this planet? Because he sees all of eternity coming. He knows what's coming in the future. He sees everything. And God is more concerned with that eternity than this temporal state we are now in. And He's working now for that eternity. But please know that God will protect His people now and forever like He does here in this text. And so, you know, this text, it, it, it's like so much of the book of Acts. I mean, I, I feel like if I hit these themes several times, it's not my fault. It's God's, okay? He put them in the book of Acts, and, and he thinks it's good that we keep hitting these themes. I think you can probably feel that this is good because we have an expectation that this will be easy. And it's just not. This text, like so much of Acts, it's just a reminder to us, Christ Redeemer Church, the gospel spreads on this earth through pain. Not easy. Why? One reason, because the gospel confronts our idols. Christ confronts our false gods, and many people on this earth will simply defend their idols at all costs and attack those who share the gospel. So, Christ Redeemer Church, let's manage our expectations. So when we feel it, we're not all um, surprised by it. Let's manage our expectations. Let's get ready to embrace some pain. And let us, by the grace of God, just keep going out to a lost and dying world in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in in, in our city, in in our church plants, in global missions, in in our life groups. Let's trust that God will be with us, protecting us, covering us at all times, even in death. And let's look forward to that eternal reward, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. May we be about His eternal kingdom in Jesus' name. Father, we bless you. We just thank you. Lord, we are, um, we're slow to get things at times. And so we would just thank you, Father, that in a long book like Acts, you would just keep reminding us of certain things. This book of Acts, we see Jesus here and that's our king. And we see the story here of spreading the gospel and pain and that's our story. We are the extenuation of the book of Acts. So, Father, please manage our expectations by the grace of God. 
let us find Christ to be the true, all-surpassing treasure he is. And Father, may we now just go and share that with a world that we know at times will be hostile. We know we've been sent out as sheep among wolves. Give us grace, Lord God, to go. To go, Lord God, to lay down our idols, to cling to Christ, and go for your glory and our joy. We thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.